The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. From Psalm 50. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, You tell us to ask You for help. To call upon You in the day of trouble and You will come and deliver. And so we ask You now here in this day and in this moment of trouble, in in our moment of need here, and the reality is that every moment on this earth is a time of trouble, a time of need. We, we sense it more acutely in some situations, but in this life we will have much trouble and always we fight against sin, fight against the flesh. Every moment we face need and we ask You, Father, Son, and Spirit, would You come into our midst now and deliver? Give us aid. Clear out of our minds distractions, temptations. I pray for some here in particular that You would press upon them. Press into their hearts and minds a clear comprehension of Your goodness for them as they doubt it or have forgotten. Others here, Lord, I ask You in the the flavor of our text today to expose the secrets of their minds. Expose the secrets to them. Press into the lives of some here and make them clear to them. Lead us to repentance then, Lord. Others of us here, Lord, we face great difficulties even in concentrating through the opening of Your Word. And so I pray, help us to focus, give us attention, give clarity to what I say, and open up our hearts that what is true from Your Word would come to rest in us and would renew and change us. We need that kind of help. You say, Lord, call out to me and I will come and deliver. And the result is that we will be delivered and you will be honored, glorified, shown to be the deliverer. Do that work in our midst, I pray, Lord. For us as a church, Father, would you shape us to be a people who are concerned with what you are concerned with. As we see in the passage today, who are concerned with lost people 
friends and family members and neighbors all around us. Lord, make us a church that thinks about others and not just about ourselves. That thinks about spiritual gifts in regards to others. That is effective with our spiritual gifts in the lives of others for their good and for your honor. We need you to accomplish that in us. And so here in our moment of need, I I ask you, Father, would you do that? Would you draw near and would you come and change us and make us different? Help us now and this time I pray, make your word clear and grow us through it. For the sake of Christ's name in our church, I pray this. Amen. As we turn our attention this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we find ourselves in the middle of this chapter, in the middle of Paul's discussion about spiritual gifts. And you'll recall over the last couple of chapters, Paul has introduced to us this idea that, that we are a body, we are a unit, we are not just individuals, we are a family in fact. Christians, here, this, this church, we are a unit, a body, and we all are to work together as one, differently gifted. Chapter 12 opened up to us the reality that there is a, a whole host of gifts that God in grace gives to Christians and makes us all, as one body, all working together differently. And so we are to desire these gifts and actually seek after them. And at the end of chapter 12, he says that there are some gifts that are actually higher gifts that have a a different usefulness in in this body. We are to especially desire them. And as soon as you say that something is higher or is to be especially desired, there's an opening there for pride. And so Paul sees the opportunity then to address in chapter 13 the more excellent way of walking, the path of love. So yes, pursue the spiritual gifts. Yes, seek after some gifts in particular, but all of that on the path of love. We are to be a people who are gifted, but more importantly, a people who are loving. Chapter 13, and then bridging into 14, which we looked at last week, pursue love, he says, beginning of chapter 14, along with the spiritual gifts. And in particular, he moves into discussing two gifts, which were probably gifts discussed because they were causing a problem in Corinth. Gifts of prophecy and tongues. We talked about verses 1 to 19 last week. And, and if you weren't here, uh, I am sure there will be things that you'll wonder about that, that I won't be addressing this morning. I just have to refer you back, point you back to that last week. But last week we looked at, very briefly, tongues and prophecy. And we saw that tongues, which is an, an utterance, he says here in, in Corinth, it's an utterance of, of mysteries to God in the Spirit. And it's real. Paul speaks in tongues a lot. Wishes that others did as well. Says there is value in it. It builds up the individual. But as we saw, there is limited value in it. Because, this was the issue, tongues is fundamentally unintelligible communication with God. Of limited value when compared to, on the other hand, prophecy. And he's comparing these two again because they were the issue in Corinth. Prophecy and gifts that are like it. We saw he kind of sneaks in a couple of other gifts into those 19 verses. These other gifts, because they are intelligible, because they speak 
words that go to the mind and can be thought through and evaluated, prophecy is of much greater value than tongues. One of the higher gifts. Because of how we as individual people grow. God has designed us, as Paul says elsewhere in Romans, that we are people transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so prophecy, a word from God spoken through a person to another person's mind, is word spoken here that I can take in, understand, process, evaluate, always against the Scripture. But it affects my mind and I can be then renewed and changed. Or as he says in six different places in verses 1 to 19, built up. The church built up. As minds are addressed by prophecy. Which is why prophecy is of more value than tongues. It serves to build up the church. So in verse 19 he says, Therefore, though I do speak in tongues all the time, in the church I would rather speak five words with my mind to instruct than 10,000 words in a tongue. Which is just about as close as he can come to saying, I'm never going to do it. I would speak 10,000 words in a tongue, but it would waste the time that I would have to say five words that would actually help to build up the church. Prophecy. So he's concerned about building up the church. And that same idea then carries into our passage for today, verses 20 to 25. He continues by saying, we should prefer to speak to the minds of believers who have built up the church, and also, we should prefer to speak to the minds of unbelievers. So as we would hope to see some saved. And because prophecy and related gifts speak to the mind, they are also of greater value in witnessing. Not just in building up a church, but also for the sake of non-Christians. And that's the additional point that we're going to look at today. In verses 20 to 25. That's where we're going this morning. Let me read 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 20 to 25. Brothers and sisters, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners I will speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Well, prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. 1 Corinthians 14. Paul opens in verse 20 with, with a, a bit of a mild rebuke. He's not, not harsh here, but there's a bit of a, of a confrontation. Brothers, sisters, do not be immature in your thinking, which means that he detects some immaturity. Don't be childish. Grow up. 
which is ironic because, of course, we, as we've seen repeatedly, Corinth, the people in Corinth, consider themselves highly mature, highly spiritually gifted. Eh? We're, we're Christians, we're heirs of the king, we have arrived. And he says again, as he has before, actually, no, I'm going to knock you down a notch. There's immaturity here, childishness. And the issue, tongues and prophecy, there's, there's childishness here in how you're thinking about this. So let's get this straight here. Tongues of limited value, clearly of less value than prophecy. But you're not thinking that way. And it seems that he's not just saying that the people who speak in tongues aren't thinking this way. It seems that none of them are. There are two camps, tongues and prophecy. They are kind of at odds with one another. And he doesn't just say, you tongue speakers grow up. It seems that some have valued prophecy more, but they've kind of arrived at the right answer accidentally. They just value it because it's their gift. Neither one of them are thinking this through properly, and he wants them to think it through properly, with maturity in mind. He's going to talk about the whole church and how the atmosphere of a church should be. And to set the stage, it's kind of helpful to kind of get this in mind for, for this morning a little bit and also into the coming verses when he talks about orderly worship. Keep in mind that when he talks about when the whole church comes together in verse 23... chapter 12, we talked about the church assembling, and we had a few details covered there. The church met in homes then. And even the larger homes of that day would have had maybe a living room that could have maybe held a dozen. And an outside foyer or a courtyard, maybe 30, maybe 40. No, nothing like this size. So the whole church gathering together is actually a rather small group. It's a different environment. And in smaller groups, you have a lot more give and take. More, more commonly, you, more people talk. You can maintain order more easily with fewer numbers of people. And when he says that all speak in tongues or, or all prophesy, he's already said that not everybody has all the gifts. He's clear on that. He's not saying that every single person does this or every single person does that. He's saying when you gather together, there are a couple of atmospheres that could be created. One, an atmosphere that is that is full of tongue-speaking, or an atmosphere that is full of prophecy. How are we to think about these two atmospheres, these two environments? What sort of environment should we value? How, why? That's what he's getting at. And in verse 21, he pulls up an Old Testament passage to give us an answer. He points out that in the law it is written... And as an aside, notice how the New Testament can call all the Old Testament the law. He's going to quote from Isaiah, not from the books of Moses. He's just saying, in the Old Testament, it is written, and he quotes something very particular from Isaiah 28. He's attacking this idea that you think tongues are, are superior. That's not right, guys. You've got to think this through a little differently. Tongues is not an evangelistic aid, it's an evangelistic hindrance. Let me point it out to you from the book of Isaiah. Now, because as you read through here, when Paul talks about unbelievers and believers, because it seems that he kind of loops back on his language, there have been a lot of ways that people have kind of sorted this out. But what everybody agrees on is that by 24 and 25, it's really clear what he means. The conclusion is very clear. And so, Working backwards from the conclusion, here's what I think he means us to take out of his use of Isaiah. If you look at Isaiah 28, 
The context is God speaking to unbelieving Israel. And He's speaking about the judgment He is going to bring on Israel. The flood of Assyria washing over the land. And you will stand there, unbeliever, and you will hear all around you babbling tongues you do not understand. It's the Assyrian language. And in that moment, that's my judgment. And the result of that? They will not listen. When tongues comes, unbelief is present and unbelief remains in judgment. Prophecy, on the other hand, when God is speaking to His people with the prophet, what's He doing with the prophet Himself? He's calling out and saying, here's your sin, turn. Here's your sin, turn. I will save, come back. So the prophet is speaking a message of here is salvation held out for you to process and understand. But by the time tongues arrives, too late. Judgment. So here in Isaiah, you've got prophecy and tongues in two different categories. A sign. When you see tongues, it's over. But before then, listen to the prophet for salvation. That's a setup in Isaiah. And then Paul then takes that into the New Testament. And and granted, there are differences. Obviously, the language of Assyria is not the the tongues of Corinth. And obviously, an Old Testament prophet is not a New Testament prophet. We talked about that last week also. But the same basic principle applies here. You think, guys, you think that tongues is is a positive sign, and it isn't. In fact... If there's an atmosphere of tongues speaking here in the assembly and an unbeliever comes in, what will happen? He will think you guys are out of your minds. And he will not listen. But if there's an atmosphere of prophecy here in our assembly, what will happen? He will be convicted by all. Called to account by all. All that he sees and all that he hears, he'll be convicted called to account the secrets of his heart exposed at least to him in his own mind and to become a worshiper he'll be saved so which one of these two should we value in the public setting obviously prophecy because again it's intelligible and it speaks to the mind that's the passage from which I draw this main point. This is my main point, which I'm just going to, as usual, kind of break apart into two different halves. What Paul's trying to communicate to us here is that God graciously speaks to the mind of unbelievers through the gifting of His people. Certain gifts, ones we should value more highly. But what we need to get out of this is that He's going to speak to the minds of unbelievers through us and through the gifts that He gives to us. Particularly prophecy as we see here. I'm just going to break that in half. Starting with the end about Him speaking to the minds of unbelievers. Here's my first, my first observation. 
conversion begins with a conviction of personal guilt before God. I need to start here because this is the premise that, that prophecy being valued, that valuing is based on this point. That conversion begins with conviction of personal guilt before God. Verse 24, starting at the end as I said, contrary to the, the, the useless encounter in verse 23, in verse 24 you've got an encounter that produces something. What does it produce? The unbeliever enters in as the church is gathered together doing its thing. As he's already said, our atmosphere should be one of of prophesying to one another. We're doing our thing and the unbeliever enters in and the person who comes in sees and hears and is convicted by all. That is, becomes aware of and convinced that he is a sinner. Convicted. Maybe it happens in this way. As you speak to me, let's suppose, you speak to me about my pride. You're, you're talking to me. You're confronting me on something. And I have to think about that. I have to listen and give consideration to it and ponder. That's kind of a bold statement. You're, you're saying that this is a message that God has for me and I'm thinking about that and I'm evaluating it. And as I respond to it appropriately, this outsider watches it. Sees the conversation. We're not talking to him. We're talking to each other. And something happens inside. The Spirit of God says to him, that's you. That applies just as much to you as it does to him. You are a proud man. Even more so because you would never respond like that guy just did. You don't know who he is or what's going on, but you see how he responded. You would not respond that way. Remember how last week in the office when that guy accused you of being a know-it-all and how you fumed over that and gossiped about him all day long? That's you. We never see it. But God does something in his mind, inside of him, as he observes, as he sees how we interact, how we talk. He's convicted. And the Spirit continues. And you will give an account for that. You will stand before God and give an account for that attitude. God is holy. You are not. What we're talking about here, folks, and this will come up in the second point, is something supernatural. You see, you and I are talking to each other, and this third guy who has come into our midst, something's going on inside of him that we are not creating. You're talking to me. I'm responding to you. He's being affected. That is what must happen. He must be convicted of sin. What Paul is lining out for us very clearly there in 24 and 25, it starts with conviction, account, exposure. 
That's what precedes salvation. By, 20, by 25, he falls on his face in worship. He has been saved, but it started with conviction. And this is a gracious work of God. Often, when I talk about sin, maybe even right now, as you're sitting here listening to this, I'm talking about conviction. I'm talking about sin. I'm talking about confrontation. You are that man. And we can kind of, kind of get that and say, man, that's kind of not nice. Kind of confrontational, maybe even rude. Men and women, it is a gracious work of God. Because of what it leads to. Think about this. God need not say anything about any of our sin to us at all until the judgment day. We would still be just as guilty, surprised by it perhaps, but God graciously speaks even now to us and says, look, let, let me reveal you to you. Let me expose the secrets of your heart to you. Now will there is still an opportunity. Let me convict you so that you know beyond just, this is, it is so important that we move and that God himself touch us and move us beyond. Yes, I am less than perfect. Of course, I mess things up. Yes, the world has fallen that he moves beyond that to you are a sinner. If we do not come under that conviction, we cannot be saved. If we do not help other people come under that conviction, they cannot be saved. Because as Jesus said, only sick people look for doctors. If we do not regard ourselves as sick, if you do not regard yourself as sick, then the offer of a good physician to heal you means nothing. It is a gracious work of God that He would speak to you and convict you of sin. So my hope is that some who sit here even now and are not believers, that God would be touching you and would be saying, you yourself, your teenager... You're an adult male. You're a young girl. You yourself before me. Guilty. Not to bust you. But to lead you to verse 25 where you would end up falling on your face in worship of Him. How does that happen? Not just by knowing you're guilty. But as the Spirit of God who works in the midst of us to convict of sin and righteousness and judgment, the next thing he does is then also to illumine Jesus as a good and as the only hope for us. It is the only reason he bothers to convict you of sin now is to show you that there is a Savior. You do have a problem indeed, but there is a great and glorious good God who means to save you. It's not spelled out here in the middle. It's been all over this book. So I think at this point he assumes it. That how you get from 24 to, to the end of 25 is only by Jesus. 
which I, I can talk about, but unless the Spirit of God were to grab you and poke you right now and say, you are a sinner. And unless that happens, then anything I say in the following two minutes will not mean anything to you. So my prayer, my hope, is that He would poke you and say, you're guilty. You will stand and give an account for it. It's true. It's in your heart exposed to you. And then He will say, but there is a single great and glorious, gracious provision from God. God the Father sent God the Son for that thing in your heart that I pray you see right now. That setting up of yourself as God. He won't tolerate that. He will call you to account for it. But gloriously, undeservedly, He has provided an atonement to pay for that sin in your heart right now. If you would see that, if God would open that to you, that you would see, I am a sinner and Jesus is a Savior provided for me. Trust Him. If you see that right now, trust Him alone. Your only hope, but a really, really, really good one. The only reason you would worship God is that you would see even in this moment that God is glorious and worthy of being worshipped to save me, a sinner. That is what prayerfully, hopefully, a person who does not believe and has come into the midst of the church would see by the work of God the Spirit But the message to us as the church is that he's observing, she's observing us communicating with each other in a way that is conducive for that. I got more to say about that in the second point, but right now I want to say if you and I get together and all we ever talk about is football, maybe basketball too. Maybe, what is there to see? The the whole idea here is that we are a community that is a a living witness. Now, sure, we talk about football, we talk about basketball, of, of course, because we are real people who have full lives. But my goodness, brothers and sisters... Should not a significant piece of our life be this gospel? Such that we interact with one another in ways, even in this, this is about prophecy, a spiritually supernatural way, but we can move it off of that to say, even in our normal everyday conversation, where we would talk about who am I really? What do you see in me? How can you help me? with the truth of the gospel. If, if we're not about that when we gather together, then the non-believer who comes in among us has nothing to see. We're not choosing between a gift of, I mean, atmosphere of tongues and atmosphere of prophecy. We're choosing between an atmosphere of football and atmosphere of basketball. There's nothing there. 
So think through, when, when you gather together with the body of Christ, what's the atmosphere there? What do you most value? What comes out of you? In addition to uh, certainly the events of life, but does Christ and His good, gracious, saving work for you, does it ever come out of you? And if it doesn't, why not? Because we usually talk about stuff that's important to us. We usually talk about stuff we're thinking about. Stuff we find to be beautiful and wonderful and interesting. This should be. Maybe what it means is that it isn't actually valuable and precious to you. And God has to reorient how you see it, brother, sister. You realize that we all, not just talking about them, us, me. I'm guilty. I would have to give an account. There's secrets in my heart that are exposed. And as I think through what the gospel has meant for me, as I think through, it doesn't take long to run back to yesterday's or last night's sin and say, oh, before a holy God, oh, but the cross, bless you, thank you. Stirs in me thankfulness. Do you need to run the gospel through your own mind more frequently? Conversion begins with conviction of personal guilt before God. And that conviction, as I've already said, is a work of God that uses our human communication. So the work of God that uses our human communication is kind of what leads me to the second point. Let me make my second observation then. Mature Christians desire that presence of God which leads to the salvation of others. Mature Christians, what do we want? What do we desire? Mature Christians desire that presence of God, the the type of presence of God that leads to the salvation of others. Maturity is the issue that Paul pokes at in verse 20. He's accusing them of immaturity, of thinking in an immature way. Why? Because they're valuing the the gifts, they're they're contending over the gifts. But he's not just attacking their immaturity because they're, they're fighting like kids. And in this section, he's not attacking immaturity because they don't want to build up the church. That was the previous verses. In this section, he accuses them of immaturity because they are engaging with one another mindless of how all this affects non-believers. That's not on their radar. A mature Christian would think, Lord, I want you to be present in are midst and present in me, using me so that in any possible way I might save some. 
chapter 9. So that all of my life and all of our life might be, might perhaps possibly in some way elevate the gospel and bring other people into the worship of you. That's how a mature Christian thinks. And these folks right here are just going back and forth over their gifts. Who has the right to express what, when, and where? And the non-Christian is being completely overlooked. Which right away leads me to ask, do you think like that? Do we, when we gather here, when we gather together in other gospel communities or in our small groups or to go out to lunch together, do you think, is what's present on your mind, how is this, how will I, how will our conversation here affect non-believers? Or is it all about us? You recall, th- this it's for the sake of this, two weeks ago. Everything that goes on in the church, the building up of the church, is for the sake of God's larger picture to bring all the nations into submission to His Son, the King. In Psalm 2. When you're doing this, do you have this in mind? Or is it only here? Just about us. Just about building me, about building us. I find... I am much for this. I have to work at reminding myself of the big picture. How about you? Which means a couple of things for us. We have to, as I've already said, we have to think about our conversation, what it is that that inhabits the airspace between us. But to the two, I'll say two different groups here, I'll call us the the charismatic portion of our church and the non-charismatic portion of our church. There's a couple of different messages here. Let me kind of speak to those two groups. To those among us who are what I'll call charismatic, maybe you do speak in tongues or you, you know someone who speaks in tongues, What's the message here? Well, the obvious message is that I should be thinking through non-believers around me and how my gifts affect them. I would encourage you to think about that in the church and also in your family. I have known folks who have the gift of tongues and, and think that in private means not in church, but in my home, it's wide open in my home. And there are people in their own family who are turned off significantly by that. So keep it in mind even in your own home. You, you experience, when you speak in tongues, you experience something of what Paul talked about in these previous verses. Some intimacy with God, some sweetness with God. And, and you think then that that is compelling But actually on the outside, it's not intelligible and it's off-putting. So keep that in mind. It is not hard to look out beyond just us, to look out at the evangelical world and see whole churches and whole meetings and assemblies that are far from this. So there's that point there, but 
I really want to emphasize a different point to that portion of our church that doesn't speak in tongues and would probably consider yourselves maybe less charismatic, non-charismatic. I want to say this carefully because it's gonna, it'll necessarily come out as a blanket statement and, and it's not true in every case all the time. But we who are in this category, rather than we who are in this other category, we who are in this category, this non-charismatic category, the danger that we often fall into is you hear me talking about speaking truth to the mind, speaking intelligible words, and you say, man, thank goodness, I can do that. And the spirit part of spiritual gifts gets left at the door. The God part of the whole equation gets left aside. This is a danger. We begin to think we can communicate. We can, I can talk. I can explain a Bible passage. I, I can speak to a brother or a sister. And we forget that apart from the Spirit of God, I can do nothing. If we were to become a people or a church that knows much truth and communicates many facts, but does so without dependence on and without that presence of God that actually drives truth into the heart and changes, if we do it without God, nothing at all will happen. Nothing. And I must say, this is a concern that I have. We must be careful to not overlook the need for the supernatural. What's going on here in this passage is that an outsider is supernaturally affected by something I cannot do. I can never convict anybody. I can never expose the secrets of anybody's heart. I can never, you can never make Jesus appear so beautiful and make Him appear to be the only hope that He actually is such that a person believes. We can never do that. We have to be involved in it, but we are not the power that makes it so. God is. So we must have the presence of God. That presence of God that affects salvation. And we will not have it if we are not really convinced we actually need it. We must be desperate for it and realize our utter hopelessness if God Himself does not come and take His Word and take our words and strike them into the human heart. Nothing will happen if He does not. Do you believe that? I hope intellectually you believe that. Does your prayer life say you believe that?
Mine often does not. I put that in there because that's where it comes home to me. I realize I'm saying this. I'm, I'm expressing it. Do I pray for it? Do I pray for it with a sense of of utter hopelessness if it does not get answered? God, you must or I cannot. There's a story told by Martin Lloyd-Jones who was a pastor in England, died in 1981, so he's a relatively modern guy. He told a story about preaching in his church in Wales early in his life. And there was a medium, a woman who trafficked in occult spirits, a medium who became a Christian in that church. And they asked her why to talk about her story. And long story made short, what she said was that she regularly, her job was to summon up spirits, which some of us, let me tell you, that's real. The universe, as somebody once said, the universe is alive. There are spirits. Even in the Bible. Certainly in our world today, there are spirits. And her job was to commune with them and to summon them up and to tell fortunes and to see the future through them. And she was homesick one day and she saw people passing by her house going to church. And she said, I'll go see what that's about. And as she said later, she came in. She doesn't know anything about the gospel, doesn't know anything about this church. First time there, she says, I became aware of a clean power. That was her phrase. A clean power. Unlike the ones that I dealt with all the time. I don't know what you guys believe. I don't know what you teach. But I sense a power here. We cannot conjure up that power. We cannot talk up that power. Now that power does not save if it does not have the gospel attached to it. But that power, we know him by the name Holy Spirit. He is a he. He will take these words, but he will take these words. And if He has been grieved away from us by our self-sufficiency, there will be no power here in our midst. There will be no conviction and there will be no salvation. And where there is a tendency for those more on the charismatic side of things to miss the fact that truth must be spoken to the mind and that that is what saves, there is a tendency on those on the less charismatic side of things to think that truth alone reigns. It doesn't. Truth with the power of the Holy Spirit behind it. God takes truth and saves. We need God. In my life and in our life. To build us up, sure. But this passage is about for salvation, for evangelism. We need God. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. We can't create it. We have to ask for it. 
and lean into it and hope and depend and say, God, please. But we pray, God, please, come. Come and be in our midst so that when someone walks in, they will sense here a clean power. That as I talk to you, this one will be struck by it. That's the power. Apart from that, we play church and waste our time. Period. May God be in our midst. May you as an individual, may we as a people depend on Him and say, God, you must speak. It's talking about prophecy here. It applies to other things as well. He's, He's got these two gifts because of the issue in Corinth. But He's talking about something supernatural that He uses to reach people. God, you must be here, please. May we be a people who depend on Him for that. God graciously speaks to the minds of unbelievers through the gifts He gives us through our mouths, but God graciously speaks. If God doesn't, it's just me talking, we are to be pitied above all men. I'm going to close in prayer and ask God to have His way among us in the area of dependence on Him. The area of hoping, praying, asking Him. Come and be in our midst so that when we we sit with the Gospel between us, there will be power in it. For the sake of building the church, but in particular for the sake of reaching others who don't yet know Him but need to. I'm going to pray for that. Pray with me. Father, You have given to us gifts. They are manifestations of Your Spirit. We say thank You for that. Many gifts, all valuable, but in particular, You've given us gifts that speak truth to the mind and empowered by Your Spirit can produce change. We especially say thank You for that. And I ask You, Lord, that I ask You to make us individually and us as a people Ones who are dependent on You to give power to Your gifts. Where we are afraid to let go of it, help us. Where we are uncertain as to what to say, make it clear. Or give us faith to speak and trust You. where we don't value the Gospel very much at all and therefore don't find it on our minds and on our tongues, Lord, change us. 
where we don't care about non-believers, don't think about them, don't love them, don't hope for them, will break our hearts. We are people that are in need of You. Would You have Your way among us your people, to make us what You want us to be. And then, Lord, I ask that You would use us in the lives of others. Would You please, God, move in our midst and in this valley and in this nation to bring a great change. Said in Your Scriptures that the wind blows wherever it pleases. And you were talking about the Spirit there. Lord, would You blow you cause a wind you cause a river to rise a tide to turn and in our church here and in the circles in which we move would you cause graciously cause people to understand to sense conviction perhaps through how we live or what we say Would You cause then people to see the glory of Jesus the Savior through what we say and how we live? Would You pour out Your Spirit and bring that to pass? Would You save people? Would You build Your church? Would You bring the nations to heal under the good and gracious authority of King Jesus? Father, this is Your work. So we ask you to do it, and I ask you to use us and to use me in your timing and in your way, but would you please use us? We want to be available to you. So have your way with us, Lord, for our good, for the growth of your kingdom, and for the fame of your name, I pray this. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.